In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, and that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins, for the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father, Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. At that time, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert. We read in this Sunday's Gospel, the first Sunday of Lent. At that time, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards, he was hungry. It's a great mystery, Lord Jesus, to see the Spirit lead you to be tested by the devil. He leads you into temptation, into battle. On the surface, it seems the opposite of what we pray for in the Our Father. Lead us not into temptation. But this temptation, this testing, is part of God's plan for Christ. It's part of what the Spirit is moving him to do. The Spirit of Jesus moves him to live his life as he does to make all the decisions that he makes. And so this is a good reminder for us that temptation is part, not just of the human story, but of the Christian story. Temptation is part of God's original plan for us. And as a race in Adam and Eve, we failed that first temptation, as we read about in the first reading. But it's also part of God's plan for us as Christians, that Christ himself was tested. Christ himself was tempted. And so we shouldn't be surprised if that is part of our own personal story that at times in our life we have to go through a more difficult stretch of temptation. We could be tempted to sin, to turn away from God in some kind of positive way by sensuality or selfishness. Or we could just be tempted to discouragement or despair right, when things are difficult for a while and don't, don't go our way. St. Josemaria writes about this helpfully. Everything seems to touch you on the raw to make you suffer in your mind and in your senses. And everything is a temptation to you. Be humble, I insist. You will see how quickly all this passes and the pain will be turned into joy and the temptation into firm purpose. But meanwhile, strengthen your faith, fill yourself with hope, and make constant acts of love, even though you can feel them only on your lips. And so if we're going through a difficult time, maybe some of you are going through a difficult time right now where you're under a kind of spiritual attack or a test or you feel tempted by different kinds of sin. It could be anger, it could be frustration, could be lust, could be some addiction, whatever. Well, let's take St. Josemaria's advice. Patience. Patience. Be humble, I insist. You, you will see how quickly all this passes. And then exercising what connects us to God. And what connects us to God is faith, hope, and love. Meanwhile, strengthen your faith, fill yourself with hope, and make constant acts of love. Lord Jesus, I 
believe in you, Lord Jesus. I hope in you, Lord Jesus. I love you. Help me to believe, to hope, and to love more and more. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was hungry. And afterwards he was hungry. If we are not hungry when we fast, well, probably we're not doing it right. Right? If we're not hungry from fasting, well, something's off. Right? We're not really fasting long enough. We're not fasting hard enough. If we don't at some point feel, feel real hunger. And if we're not fasting during Lent, again, something is off. Right? Lent is a time of prayer and fasting. And if we only fast on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday, the two days that are absolutely prescribed by the church for fasting, well, we miss a real opportunity. We miss a real opportunity to live the spirit of Lent, not just according to the letter of the law, the bare minimum that the church gives us, but the true spirit of entering into a greater state of prayer and a greater state of self-denial. St. Josemaria writes in the way, A strict fast is a penance most pleasing to God. But what with one thing and another, we have become a bit too easygoing. There is no objection, on the contrary, if you, with the approval of your director, fast frequently. Lord, help us to feel the pinch of Lent. Help us to feel the hunger that comes from a generous fasting regime generous plan so that we can unite ourselves to you who you who are hungry in the desert this practice of fasting in lent is very strongly reflected in the church's liturgy especially in the latin the latin refers to our lenten practice as corporali iunio right by our bodily fasting it's very clear corporali iunio Bodily fasting, right? By our bodily fasting, we come to the Paschal mystery with our minds made pure, with our minds cleansed. Now, it's, it's interesting. I hate to complain about translations, but we see, you know, St. Josemaria says, with one thing or another, we've become a bit too easygoing. And the translation into English of Corporalia unio, which very clearly means bodily fasting, is kind of weak, if I must say so. It's, it's corporalia unio, bodily fasting, becomes Lenten observance. Right? Lenten observance, which um, is a loose translation, and, and it's also a little bit a little bit soft, right? That well, anything could be my Lenten observance, but corporalia unio is very clear. Bodily fasting or bodily self-denial. Lord, help us not to be afraid of sacrifice this Lent. Help us not to be afraid of fasting, of going without food for some for some time. A couple days a week, once a week, skip a couple meals. This is very good for us. And we make excuses, don't we? Well, you know, I, I get a headache or I get tired or... I get into a bad mood. Well, yeah, that's the whole point, right? It's, it's supposed to be something that is stressful, is difficult, and that we live on purpose. And then we live patience with ourselves and with others when we get into that funk from fasting. And um, we don't use 
flimsy excuses, right? Okay, fine. For some people, it might be bad for your health. But a lot of us think, oh, it's bad for my health, so I won't do it. And that's a danger of our age. We've kind of made an idol of health, an idol of our current state of physical well-being. I remember a Brit who lived in this country for a while, and he used to joke with us. I think I've mentioned this before in this forum, but he used to say, the American dream is to die healthy. The American dream is to die healthy. Right? Health has become like our idol. And actually, it's kind of it's very interesting that there's been a lot of studies and science done on fasting. And fasting, apparently, if it's done in, in moderation, um, and even if it's done a little bit, what we would call excess, is actually good for you. When you go without food for like 12 to 16 hours, something called autophagy starts to happen in your cells. And autophagy is the body's way of cleaning itself out. It's kind of like a regular maintenance and cleansing of the body. But it only happens when you're not digesting or eating, when you're not in what's called a fed state. Only if you get your body into a fasted state does your body start to cleanse and maintain itself. It cleans out dead cells. It gets rid of uh, proteins that are that are no longer good or useful. And it's very interesting because, you know, this has been known for a long time, but people who live the longest, people with the longest longevity, one of the most common factors in their lives is that they went for a while kind of undernourished, right? Fasting, kind of not, not eating what we would consider enough. And so it's interesting that fasting is not just good for our spiritual life, not just good for our spiritual health. It actually turns out to be quite good under normal circumstances, quite good for our physical health. And so a good fasting routine in Lent would renew us both in mind and in body. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was hungry. The tempter approached and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become loaves of bread. He said in reply, It is written, One does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. One does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. Jesus, you are the one who lives on the words of God. I always do what pleases him. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. Our Lady, Lord, your mother, has the same spirit. Be it done unto me according to your word. Lord, help us, your disciples, your followers, be men and women who live on the word of God. To live on God's word for us is to live, to do God's will for us. To live for God's will for us. To have, Lord, your will for us expressed in your word, in your word for us. Be what motivates us, what nourishes us. To be our very reason for acting and existing. So we could say with Our Lady, be it done unto me according to your word. We live on every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. And that practice of fasting, of foregoing physical nourishment and fostering physical hunger 
is a way of giving rise in our life and giving rise in our soul to the hunger for God, to the hunger for God's word, for God's will. Lord, let this be my North Star, the will of God for me, God's word for me. Let this be like a magnet that just pulls me anywhere you want me to go. What is your word for me, Lord? What is your will for me? That's what I want. That's what I at least want to want. And so we want to be sensitive to where we find the word of God and where we find the will of God. And in the first place, we find the word of God very in a very powerful way, in a substantial way, in the Eucharist. The Eucharist is Christ. The Eucharist is the word of God made flesh. The word of God made flesh, hidden under the appearance of bread, made bread so that we can eat him, receive him. And so we go to the tabernacle and we go to communion and we ask the Lord, what is your will for me? Lord, speak to me. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Here I am, Lord, your servant is listening. And that's a great practice in addition to taking scripture to our mental prayer, also to have some time where we just read the New Testament three to five minutes a day, just reading through the the Gospels and the Epistles of the New Testament, opening ourselves to the Word of God in Christ, in the revelation of Christ. And then also in our mental prayer, that we have a conversation with the Word. The Word made flesh is present in our heart. The Word made flesh is present in the Eucharist, in the tabernacle, if we pray in a church. The Word made flesh is present in Scripture when we reflect on it in our mental prayer. And then perhaps for Catholics, this is super important that we trust that the word of God comes to us through others, through channels of grace in the church, through spiritual direction, through the advice we get in confession. God's word comes to us in all these different ways, in the Eucharist, in the reading of sacred scripture, in our mental prayer, the advice we get in spiritual direction, the advice we get in confession. An amazing thing, Lord, give me faith. This takes faith. Our faith is incredible. God Almighty, an infinite being, an infinite being, an infinitely transcendent being, and yet we have such easy access to him in our prayer, in the sacraments, in the tabernacle, in confession, in other people, in our own soul, We're immersed in God. We're surrounded by God. And yet, it's God, God who's this incredibly transcendent being. None of us has a right to be in God's presence. None of us has a right to have this kind of access to God. And so for for it not to become something routine for us, not to become kind of forgetful of God, we need faith, right? We need to approach the Mass with faith and confession with faith and spiritual direction with faith and our mental prayer with faith, that I'm really meeting God here. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here. Lord, help me to be someone who lives on the word of God. One does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and made him stand on the parapet of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down For it is written, he will command the angels concerning you, 
and with their hands they will support you, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him again, It is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. It's very instructive for us to see that the devil uses sacred scripture. The most holy things, the best things, can be used for evil, can be made instruments of temptation and of sin. And this is why we as Catholics, we have to ground ourselves very much in the church's teaching, the church's official teaching, and the church's traditional understanding of sacred scripture. Because if we just read it on our own, we can go wrong, and we can even end up being like the devil, using it to justify sin, right, in ourselves or in others. Lord, help us to believe. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. I believe in one Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. And part of the role of the Church in her authentic magisterium is to protect the deposit of the faith and to clarify the deposit of the faith so we don't become all just individual interpreters of God's Word, which can be interpreted, obviously, by individuals in many different ways if we take texts out of con- out of context or passages out of the context of the whole of Revelation. And the devil does this, right? The devil does this to our Lord. And what is this temptation? Well, it's a temptation of his identity, right? If you are who I think you are, if you are who you say you are, do this, right? Prove it to me. Show me that you're special. And we too will be tempted as to our identity. All temptations, in a certain sense, are temptations of identity. According to the church fathers, when they read these passages in the synoptics of the temptations of Jesus by the devil, they say that what the devil is really doing is trying to see if Jesus is really the Messiah, trying to see if Jesus really is the Son of God. Right, by putting him to the test. And, the, and our own temptations are really tests of whether we're truly children of God, right? whether we're truly Christ-like. Because every temptation has a echo of the first temptation. And the first temptation was a temptation of identity. Do you conceive yourself as a child of God who trusts God, or do you conceive yourself as an individual in competition with God who has to just make your own way, who has to take care of yourself primarily because God is not good, because God is against you, right? That was the nature, or one way of thinking about the nature of the first temptation. And all subsequent sin, all subsequent sin has a kind of echo or the same pattern as the first sin, as the first temptation. And so we read about this in today's first reading. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the animals that the Lord God had made. The serpent asked the woman, Did God really tell you not to eat from any of the trees in the garden? The woman answered the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. It is only about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden that God said, you shall not eat it or even touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you certainly will not die. No, God knows well that the moment you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like gods who know what is good and what 
is evil. He's tempting her to think of God and therefore to think of herself in a different way. Don't think of yourself in relationship to God as a benefactor, as someone who loves you, as a friend, as a father. Rather, you should think of yourself in relation to God as a competitor, as someone who's trying to keep you down, as someone who's trying to keep you from being who you really can be if you break his laws. The woman saw that the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eyes and desirable for gaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. And in the temptations of Jesus, a similar thing is happening. Hey, if you're great, be great in yourself. Right? Do this. Show me that you're great. And Jesus' identity as the Son of God is protected precisely by his obedience, by his humility and his obedience. One does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes forth from the mouth of God as he answers the first temptation. And then he answers the second temptation. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And I don't need to assert my own identity over and against God because I exist in relation to God. And our own temptations will always have that, have that aspect to it. Do I trust God? Is God good? Is the source of all that is good? Is he on my side? Or do I have to cut loose and take care of myself and make up my own rules and make my own way and assert myself? And those are the two options between sin and trust between disobedience and obedience, between rebellion and love. And this is what our Lord models for us, right? He he keeps saying, no, that's not the way because it's not the right relationship with God. No, that's not the way because it's not who God is and who I truly am. Then the devil took him up to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their magnificence. And he said to him, All these I shall give to you, if you will prostrate yourself and worship me. At this Jesus said to him, Get away, Satan. It is written, The Lord your God shall you worship, and him alone shall you serve. And again, the third temptation, the temptation of worldly success, the temptation of worldly glory, which turns out just to be another form of self-exaltation, right, over and against God. Jesus rejects it by keeping God in absolute first place. Get behind me, Satan, it is written, the Lord your God shall you worship, and him alone shall you serve. There's a mountain that overlooks the beautiful port city of Barcelona, And on top of the mountain, there's this church and this peak, this area. There's also like an amusement park there. It's very beautiful. And the view from there is incredible. And the people from Catalonia and Barcelona call that mountain Tibidabo, right? Which is Latin for, I will give you this, right? Or this I shall give you, Tibidabo. And so in their 
understandable civic pride, they named this site with this beautiful view of Bar- of Barcelona and the uh, Mediterranean and the beaches. They named it after this temptation, right? As if that was the place where our Lord was tempted by the devil, that our Lord uh, was looking out over Barcelona and the surrounding environs, and the devil said, I'll give you this, right? And so uh, a little bit of civic pride there, but um, it reminds me also of that line from The Man for All Seasons, where Thomas More speaks to his betrayer, uh, Richie Rich, who was offered the government of Wales for his betrayal of Thomas More. More reproaches Richard, saying this, It profits a man nothing to give his soul for the whole world, but for whales, Richard. And so we all have our own whales, right? We all have our own Barcelona, right? That dream of earthly success, that little dominion we've created in our career, our desired place in the world, our making a name for ourselves, or maybe just the comfort and success of life that we've always wanted, right? A beach house here and a certain level of comfort and and financial stability um, to make that possible. Right? Whatever it is, we have our little uh, dreams about worldly success, whether it's in career, whether it's in possessions, or whether it's in reputation or a combination thereof. Lord, keep us detached, detached from our own achievements, detached from our own reputation, detached from our professional work. God resists the proud and pours his grace on the humble. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. We are not tested beyond our strength, as we read in St. Paul. He will not test us beyond our strength. With the temptation, he gives a way out. And so if we're being tested now in some way as to hope or as to faith or as to love or as to purity or as to fidelity, whatever our temptation is, let's just hang on. Temptation doesn't last forever. Be patient with the situation. It's not an opportunity to sin. It's really an opportunity to be faithful, right? to win a lasting crown, to identify ourselves with our Lord. It's an opportunity for patience. It's an opportunity for faith. It's an opportunity for hope. It's an opportunity to be loyal to God and to others. It's an opportunity to be generous and accepting the discomfort of our situation. Lord, help me to see temptation in the way that you want me to see it. All things work into the good for those who love God, as St. Paul puts it. All things work into the good for those who love God. And so when anything happens, we we have to ask ourselves, well, how can this work into my good? And how can I actively accept and get on board and make it work unto my good freely? And so when we see temptation, not so much as an opportunity to sin or an invitation to sin, but rather when we see it as an opportunity to resist sin and therefore to please God 
and to suffer for others and to grow in hope and to grow in patience and to win a higher crown of glory in heaven. Well, then we're, we're really um, taking advantage of St. Paul's um, expression of God's providence and we're really doubling down on God's goodness. All things work into the good for those who love God. If anything happens to me, there's some good way of living through it. There's some good way of accepting it. There's some silver lining that I have to find there. We go to Our Lady. Our Lord is the new Adam. Through one man, death came into the world, and also through one man, our Lord. We are saved and redeemed, as we read in the second reading. And Our Lady is the new Eve. Eve gives into the temptation of an angel, and Mary, the new Eve, accepts the invitation of an angel. Adam gives into pride and eats the apple after Eve, and Christ insists on humility and protects his identity and therefore gives us a new one. Our Lady, the new Eve, pray for us. Help us to be generous in our fasting this Lent, to be generous in our prayer, and to learn how to reinterpret our moments of testing and temptation as opportunities, above all, to love. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations which you have communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help to put them into effect, my Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.